Hello, and welcome to Banter, the official podcast of the American Enterprise Institute. I'm Phoebe Keller, the head of AEI's media department, and I'm here with AEI president Robert Dorr, we'll be your Banter co-hosts. Each week, we'll take you inside our think tank for conversations with leading policymakers and thinkers about today's pressing policy issues. Thanks for tuning in. Joining us on Banter again today is Matt Continetti, who's a senior fellow with us at AEI, where his work is focused on American political thought and history, with a particular focus on the development of the Republican Party and the American conservative movement in the 20th century. A prominent journalist, analyst, author, and intellectual historian of the right, he was the founding editor and editor-in-chief of the Washington Free Beacon. He was previously the opinion editor at the Weekly Standard. Matt is also a contributing editor at National Review and a columnist for Commentary. His most recent book, which we'll discuss today, The Right, The Hundred-Year War for American Conservatism, was just published on April 19th by Basic Books. Thanks for joining us on Banter, Matt. Thank you for having me. It's great to be here. Phoebe and listeners, Matt's book is the, the hottest thing in town these days. The talk of the town. And it's the talk of the town. Everywhere you turn, they're talking about Matt's book. And Matt, it is a great book. And th- congratulations on writing it and producing it. And Thank you. Um, but I and I want to talk about the substance of the book, but but I do want to have a little a little fun. How's it going in the rollout? What's it like out there? And what's the what's the best moments you've had is in the rollout? You're getting great reviews. Well, it's been a um, an extended rollout, uh, Robert. Uh, I guess the it started a couple of weeks before the book was actually available with uh, an essay I had in the review section of the Wall Street Journal, and then has just kind of picked up steam from there with all the reviews coming in. Um, it has been widely reviewed, Washington Post, Wall Street Journal, New York Times, New Republic, National Review. Um, Our friends at Heritage did a review of your book. Uh, uh, Heritage Foundation. I Very spoke nice. to Richard Reinsch, yep. And um, uh, so widely discussed, I'd say uh, almost all favorable. Uh, New York Magazine um, uh, reviewed it as well. Uh, so... Um, so it's going well. You're, it seems you're happy. to be going well. Is there well. one point in your <laughs> interviews or as people have received the book mm-hmm. that you're frustrated you haven't been able to get across? And you're just this one thing that people still aren't it's getting. It's less than I'm frustrated at not being able to get something across, and I get frustrated at some of the questions being asked of me. Oh, and well, I'll give you, you, I'll give you what is, yeah, a couple of examples. He's talking about us. <laughs> no, no, not, well, we haven't done the interview yet. Yeah. Uh, I found that a certain group of people only want to talk about the Never Trump movement, which, um, you know, occupies a very small portion of my book because my book covers 100 years, you know, um, 10 decades of history, many, many presidents, and um, and yet some people just focus on the never Trumpers. And what's ironic is that, you know, the never Trumpers are not actually, in my opinion, all that influential anymore mm-hmm. on the right. And so nonetheless, th- that's sometimes a little bit um, frustrating because I'd rather talk about other things, um, bigger developments. Uh, and then the second thing is there are there are some people who will say, well, you didn't put this in the book or why didn't you mention that person in the book? And I remind them not to frighten away readers uh, the book is 450 pages long, and the uh, draft I, I submitted to my publisher uh, was much longer. And so you, it has kind of those things where, you know, it's like I'm going to have to come out with the director's cut version yeah. of the yeah. book down the road no, where no, I can really incorporate every, all the other uh, names that I left of the out. the 450 pages is great. That's one thing about it. It's a very nice read. It's a Thank lovely you. read without being, without being unsophisticated or, 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 or silly. It's a really... Wonderful. Well, I thought that um, I I have a great relationship with my publisher and uh, editor. And one of the things that uh, she told me was, you know, you have to really think hard about what 
matters, right? What what are the figures that really do need to be um, communicated to the rising generation that uh, their importance? And um, so that that of course uh, made uh, made me kind of think through this and go through this process of selection. And it's the hardest thing for a historian, I found, what to what to put in and what to leave out. And um, not to stay on this sort of reaction to it, but what criticism have you gotten that's stuck or or, or not so much stuck, but that, that you'd like to respond to? What is if someone's you said let things some people have said you left things out and the yeah. people that are focusing on the never Trumpers. But but is there any is there any criticism that you want to respond to or that has hit you that you, you want to uh, I have one I want to give you and see okay. how you respond to. But what yeah. what has been bothering you in the criticism? Honestly, not not much. I, I find that I have an answer for most of the criticisms um, that are uh, leveled at me. I mean, um, you know, our friend and colleague Jonah Goldberg uh, likes the book very much, but he he felt that I didn't spend enough time talking about the fault of the left. And as I responded to him, well, that's because the book is called The Right. <laughs> yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, that's uh, right. And, you know, that's when I right. write the sequel, The Left, yes. I, I can get into those faults, which are which are plenty. Um, you know, there is a tendency just in all. Uh, book reviewing, and this is just a hazard of the trade uh, that you know some critics choose not to review the book, but choose to review you. You know, as and um, so I've been struck by several of the reviews and interviews I've done. I keep talking about my head of hair. <laughs> yeah, I have yeah, a lot yeah. of it, and you know, they're not uh, bringing up the Sarah Palin. Book? <laughs> they're not. Amazingly, actually, um, Matt wrote a book about Sarah Palin. I, that was my previous book. It yeah. came out 13 years ago, and funnily enough, I have a new book out just as Sarah Palin comes back into yeah. national yes, politics. Right. So, That's right. Uh, but you know, it's interesting. Um, the Palin Palin book, which had a very controversial title, it's called "The Persecution of Sarah Palin," and it's about the response to her after her debut in 2008. In retrospect, and I think the the current book, The Right, does uh, some of this work. In retrospect, that that book, the Palin book, falls into a line, you know, a, a kind of the part of my narrative about the rise of populism. Mm-hmm. So, yes. so I'd say that, yeah, no, people aren't really bringing up the Palin book um, as much as they're bringing up um, how much hair I have on my head. <laughs> so the one thing that I have seen that I thought struck a, a note of, of solidity was that, you know, you make this uh, this uh, sort of, well, what we're seeing now isn't much different than what was going on in the 1920s. And you you sort of say Coolidge and, and uh, I don't think you may have mentioned even President Hoover. And, and then you go on and say Taft. They're not that much different from the sort of, especially on foreign affairs issues, but others too, than whatever it is that Donald Trump and the national populists are talking about. You try to connect them to something that was back then and, and say it's not that much different. But people have written you uh, written and said that, well, hold on here, you know, in his, in his discipline and his uh, faith in the Constitution, faith in the rule of law, you know, Calvin Coolidge is not Donald Trump. Right. Is that a fair criticism? Sure. I think it uh, rests on a slight misunderstanding of what I was trying to say, which was probably my fault. I, I'm not saying that they're similar people. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, didn't, I mean, I, and I, I think in my essay in the journal, I did spend a paragraph saying that, you know, they're not, they're not the same person by any means. They're very different. But I think that the two parties that they lead on certain issues uh, bear similarity. And uh, you mentioned them. And um, uh, mainly the idea uh, of non-intervention or reluctance to engage in entangling alliances or uh, uh, intervene overseas, their attitude, the policies toward immigration, restrictionist, um, trying to tamp down um, illegal immigration in this century and just trying to cut off all uh, immigration in the last century. Um, and then also their attitudes toward trade, the Republican Party of the 1920s being 
fairly pro-tariff, and the Republican Party today, you know, um, still holding on to the Trump-China tariffs, and also kind of thinking through uh, what it means to decouple our economies from China, if that's even possible, and also is it necessary to have that kind of um, old hobby horse, uh, an industrial policy to protect uh, the American economy. So in those three sectors, I think there are some institutional political similarities, despite the fact that obviously Calvin Coolidge and Donald Trump are very different men. Uh, in the end of the book, you, you um, give a kind of uh, tribute to the Constitution and the rule of law. And the other day I was interviewing a, a former congressman, a former Republican congressman, and he used the term the authoritarian wing of the Republican Party. And I just wondered, um, what's it, what, do you know what that is? And does it exist? Or is that, a, is that, is that being made up on the left and some people are, are, are attacked? I mean, and is it part of the, the, the right's history? Well, I, I think that um, it, when you look at the history of the right, there has, in America, in America um, and certainly in Europe, there has been a tendency to um, search for a, a powerful leader, a strong man, uh, who could basically impose the agenda of the, of the right um, uh, without any of the niceties of liberal democracy. It's a phrase that Pat Buchanan coined several years ago in an article praising Vladimir Putin. And he used the phrase "the niceties of liberal democracy." Yeah, I, and I yeah, think yeah, it's, you know, I kind of Pat's a great phrase maker, and yes. I, you know, of course, he doesn't like the niceties, but I yes. do. Yeah, <laughs> right, right. Um, and uh, you know, with the rise of Trump, I think you saw on the grassroots conservatives and among some conservative intellectuals um, a vision that Trump would be this person. He would be a strong man who would be able to kind of just barrel through, uh, fight the left, and. Uh, make America great again, impose the rights agenda. Um, Charles Krauthammer, uh, in an essay published posthumously, uh, called this the authoritarian temptation. And uh, I do think it's real. Whether it goes so far as to say that there's an authoritarian wing of the GOP, I, I, I don't really um, go that far. But I do think that this search for um, a, a, a strong leader is very real. I also think that there are on the fringes people who would like to pursue what they call extra constitutional means to restore a vision of an America that is in their heads, but I don't think ever existed. And just one question on that, uh, knowing that you know this this world well, what would be the one thing they would want to do that would um, you know uh, uh, stretch the Constitution or ignore the Constitution? What, what could they actually do besides talk about it? There was, I think, a review that indicated that there's a lot of talk among that group. But right. They never actually get specific about what they do. What do you think they might do or could, not leave as I could, what well, would they actually they, want to do? they could do is overturn the results of an election, uh, which they attempted to do in 2020. And um, uh, it didn't work. Uh, the, the, the guardrails held. Um, but there were people within that circle who were, urging President Trump to do even more to overturn the election. He did not do those things. He, he relied on, on one scheme that didn't, didn't work. But I think that that'd be the, the main thing that they would do. Um, uh, and this is a danger that we need to be very uh, aware of. 
You mentioned that the scope of your book um, goes back a hundred years, and you know that's a lot of other histories of conservatism. I think focus a lot more on post World War II, um, and you've addressed, I know, like why you chose to take kind of a longer view of the movement. Um, I was curious if you would, after kind of studying that whole time period, would you categorize the Reagan years as an aberration? I think that a lot of people harken back to that time as kind of like true conservatism when when conservatives are the party of ideas. Um, And it seems like, you know, based on the scope that you've taken, that could have been the outlier rather than what we're experiencing now. Do you think that's fair to say? I guess the way I would put it is it's it's less the Reagan years that are an aberration as um, the Cold War conservative movement is a very interesting and unique political formation in the long run history of the right. Because as you say, when you look at the past hundred years of the American right, that period of Cold War conservatism uh, and the belief that uh, America needs to be engaged overseas, America needs to have alliances like NATO, needs to deploy our forces abroad, um, needs to have a big defense department, big defense budget, also needs to be free trade so that we can um, not only grow our economy, but also grow the economy of our democratic allies. And um, while the the right has always been, you know, um, pretty skeptical of immigration. Um, at but least they also had an element of of exhibit our values and promote our values right. of freedom and democracy and human in rights. contrast right. to communism, which is 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 not really a foreign policy thing, although it is. But it's also a way in which we organize our life here in the United States. So yeah, I I what you're I think I think what you say in the book is that that Cold War communism really did unite. Uh, the the right in a way that was really important. Right. So it, it I mean it both united the right, but it also kind of forced the American right into adopting a kind of outward looking view of the world that, with the uh, end of communism, um, began to erode, and a lot of the uh, frac- uh, fractures within the American right um, really became visible. And Reagan played that as strongly as anybody. You know, um, his great, I think you talk about his great line. I, have, I see it very simply. We win, they lose. Yeah, he and, told his <laughs> national security advisor at the time, yeah. That, that's uh, how I see the uh, Putin and Ukraine situation, too. I, I, totally. And we need that moral clarity, right, uh, which Reagan had uh, and which uh, was one of his strengths. I mean, he, uh, just to follow up on uh, Phoebe's question, I mean, he, he himself was a unique person as well. So, and I, I spoke a little bit at AEI yesterday about what made him a unique figure in the history of the right, which was, um, you know, when you look over the course of these hundred years, the, the leaders of the American right or the conservative movement in the main are not the most charismatic people. Uh, they tend to be kind of pessimistic. It's kind of a conservative trait to think everything's going to hell in a handbasket. Grumpy, um, grumpy, grumpy, not having a few of those around here, <laughs> not having much of a, you know, not, not very charming. So it's figures like Reagan and, of course, William F. Buckley Jr., the, the founder of the conservative intellectual movement in America, who just had these kind of sparkling personalities, which made them um, dynamic figures, um, uh, broadened their appeal into just mainstream America, you know, apolitical America, um, and also um, uh, ha- helped them serve as ecumenical figures on the right, and that every most par- parts of the American right looked to Reagan and Buckley and uh, and liked what they saw. So let's talk about two other figures that led the Republican Party and led the country, uh, but maybe weren't conservatives, and that's Ike and Nixon. Mm-hmm. I mean, I can't, 
uh, Reagan definitely shines in your book. Um, uh, what is your view of of their of, of President Eisenhower and President Nixon's role in the in the movement in the movement? Yeah, I I, I didn't uh, write as much on Eisenhower as I I would have liked, and maybe an avenue for further research. Um, Ike considered himself a conservative, a small C conservative, uh, and in some ways he was conserving what had come before him, and that for people like Buckley was the problem. It's kind of an oddity that uh, the conservative movement after the World War II really becomes a, a reality in opposition to a popular Republican president, Dwight Eisenhower, who you know is not what we think of when when we hear the words you know crusading liberal or progressive, right? But um, Eisenhower did two things which um, really bothered the American right of, of the 1950s. The first thing he did was maintain the New Deal. And the American right, after 1932 and FDR's election, really uh, fashioned itself in opposition to the New Deal. To be on the right was to oppose FDR and the New Deal. Well, Eisenhower basically continued it. He said he wasn't going to fight those, uh, those battles anymore. And the second thing Eisenhower did Despite a, a kind of coming into office with a pretty hawkish foreign policy, the idea of massive retaliation in the event of an, a nuclear uh, war with the Soviet Union, um, base, also basically maintains the policy of containment of communism. So, for example, during the Hungary... As opposed to rollback. As opposed to roll, rollback, which is what the American right wanted. So when you have the crisis in Hungary, for example, in 1956, the Hungarian Revolution and the Soviets send in troops to crush it, the... Figures like Buckley on the American right believed that America ought to inter intervene and stop it. Uh, Eisenhower did it. Um, uh, so uh, he, he was felt, okay, that's part of their sphere of influence. And so um, the, the American right really uh, distrusted Eisenhower and his vice president, Nixon. Nixon, uh, I spent a lot of time on in the book, and he shows up in several places. And um, I'm one of those guys, maybe it's just a historic historical junkie thing, but I'm endlessly fascinated by Richard Nixon. Uh, probably our smartest president. I, mean, I think it'd be a combination, it would be a contest between him and Wilson. Um, also both flawed presidents in many well, ways, yeah, right? He, the he, intelligence... President Lincoln was pretty smart. Well, Lincoln was uh, <laughs> profound. I think that maybe it's a... Lincoln is on a different level, you know, and, and Jefferson is on a different level, yeah. but you get down to 20th century American presidents. Yeah, okay. It's Wilson and, and Nixon, I think, are are, are the smartest and but yet also flawed. Um, Nixon knew that he needed to have the conservatives like Buckley and Goldwater and Reagan within his coalition, but he didn't really agree with them yeah. on, on a lot of things. He um, a, a, and uh, he had a different agenda. Um, and he was more in the Eisenhower mold, but he was also, Nixon had, I think, uh, ideas about how to restore order in America and restore order in the world that really drew from European sources. Um, he, was, he was obsessed with de Gaulle. And he uh, also was fascinated by Benjamin Disraeli, um, the, the Tory leader from the 19th century who thought that... Tory man and liberal ideas. Right. You needed to that kind of... That was Nixon. Yeah. And you, need, you needed to kind of ex actually expand the welfare state to ensure stability among uh, the lower orders. He never uses the word freedom. Very rarely uses so that that's that's a great way to distinguish it, Robert, because of course for Buckley, Goldwater, and Reagan, freedom is everything. Freedom is everything. Yeah, and let's just talk about that a little bit. Uh, the the that because that's playing out now. 
you know, that we, we, some of us here at AI get accused of being excessively libertarian and, and focused on freedom. And then there's these national populists that seem to uh, not think freedom's that. Do you think that's a, so can you be a conservative and be on either side of that debate? Well, you can be on the right and be on either side of the debate. And that's why I call my book The Right, because what I try to do is say, look, it's a very complicated thing. And when we hear the word conservative, we do think Ronald Reagan. But that can be deceptive because Reagan was not only a unique figure, but as we've been saying, his conservatism was distinctive. Mm -hmm. And uh, it it is not actually um, exemplary of the entirety of the American right. Mm -hmm. So the type of forces on the right that you're discussing that are prevalent today, the people who would emphasize order over liberty, virtue over freedom, I mean, they've been around for, for, forever yeah. and, and, through, and throughout my history. And I think one of the lessons of my book is that there is nothing new under the sun. Right. We've been having these debates on the right for a century. We'll continue to have them. And the exception maybe now is there are some institutional and structural reasons that explain that the growing power of the national populists. Um, one, um, they had a president who was basically on their side, which accounts for a lot. And two, uh, our media has changed. Our communications apparatus has changed. And so it's very easy now to find like-minded people uh, over social media to organize, to amplify your message, and to believe that you have a certain elan, that you are growing in strength. Maybe you are online, but maybe the reality outside of Twitter is a little bit different. I wanted to ask you about uh, an issue that I'm struggling with because I don't completely understand it. So I want you to explain it to me if, if you figured it out. And I think you discussed it in the book some. And that is uh, the role of Catholic intellectuals and a, a certain focus on religion and faith in the, uh, in the world of the right. And what is their role? And what, what, how, how big is it? And, and it's still around now. We, we, we are, is it, uh, explain it. Explain to what the particular perspective from, from Catholic conservatives has, has been. Um, that's a great question, and it's a, a very complicated subject. I would say a couple things. The first is that um, the uh, Catholics uh, really opposed communism. And so, when, so entering the post-war era, uh, bringing the, the Catholics into the conservative fold was really on the basis of uh, anti-communism. Godless, materialist communism that had uh, basically enslaved nations from uh, where many of our Catholic immigrants had come from in Eastern and and Southern Europe. Um, And and so this was important um, uh, for them. Uh, the, The second thing is this process of Catholicism and Catholic intellectuals becoming very uh, important within the conservative movement mirrors basically the mainstreaming of American Catholicism as a whole, right? Which is the, which is a process that takes place uh, it, throughout the 20th century. It's, it's a long process, actually. What you see with the conservatives is a way of um, basically um, infusing political debate with arguments drawn from Catholic social thought, um, uh, some Catholic religious teaching, or kind of the, about the dignity of the human person and and this becomes very important after Roe v. Wade is decided in 1973, kind of the basis of the, uh, the pro-life movement, too. Um, however, there's also been 
within the church, obviously differing attitudes about how open the church should be. The church has been more open than these Catholic conservatives. Well, for sure. Yeah. I mean, and especially um, after the Vatican II and some of the teachings on on birth control and, and sexual uh, life, um, there's been a huge debate in the church that's been mirrored on to some degree in the American right. Uh, though the American right and it, its Catholic community tend to be very con- you know, conservative on these questions and traditionalist. The third thing I would say is a figure associated with AI who plays a part in my history, Michael Novak, was very important in making arguments to Catholics that actually capitalism could be reconciled with Catholic social thought. And he spent a lot of work, uh, a lot of time, did a lot of work in the 1970s and 1980s through the 1990s saying that you could be a good Catholic and also believe in free markets, right? And that type of teaching, I think, became very influential on the right um, for several decades. It's not so now. It's not so now. And with Michael's death um, in 2018, I believe, that, that, that idea... That champion is not so there. there. It's not really a spokesman so, for that To some extent, Arthur was, but Arthur Brooks... Right. right. And so uh, so I think the, the you've seen a turn among the Catholic right toward... Um, uh, the more actually the more historic Catholic view of capitalism, which is it's not good. Negative. Yeah, <laughs> it's not good. Yeah, no, and so, like uh, and they think it's the path to you know, right. the devil. Yeah. I mean, so that so this is um, this is where we are and now. They have, and they have and they and they have a uh, if you go to some of those Catholic intellectuals and you talk to them about the Constitution or the founding documents, they'll kind of shrug them off as being lesser of lesser importance than more important. Well, for sure. I mean, because they're they're going back to some. Um, of Catholic thought from the 19th century, which um, condemned Americanism, right? Uh, precisely because of the structure of our government and the way that we we separate church and state. Um, so yes, there's been a return to older forms, uh, more uh, hostile to capitalism, uh, and uh, it hostile to uh, the classical liberalism of the American founding. Phoebe, one of the I'm sure you've read the book, so I don't have to tell you this, but there's a wonderful passage in the book about Whitaker Chambers, just a lot of, the, whatever is about Whitaker Chambers is all good. Yeah. <laughs> and, you, and I'd like you to talk about, tell us, tell our listeners about that. But there's a, a passage where you describe his reaction and takedown of Ayn Rand and Rand or whatever, however you pronounce her name. Rand, yeah. You just tell that story and what, and the line he uses yeah. that you quote from is just devastating. That was a very famous moment uh, in the history of the American right, but Whitaker Chambers, the ex-communist who had been a part of a communist spy ring in uh, Washington and DC in uh, New York and um, became famous in 1948 when he said that Alger Hiss, who had been a high-ranking member of the FDR and Truman administrations, president of the Carnegie Endowment, our next door neighbor, uh, had also been part of the spy ring. Yes. And uh, this was Nixon's introduction into political life. He, he was a freshman in the house. For listeners, our next door neighbor is the Carnegie Endowment here at AI and our building on Massachusetts Avenue. Um, so Chambers becomes an anti-communist hero and uh, also a close personal friend of William F. Buckley Jr. There's a big back and forth about whether uh, Chambers ought to join National Review. He doesn't feel that he's really in sync with it in a lot of ways. However, for a period, he does join the staff in 1957, 1959. He's also a beautiful writer. Oh, he's amazing. Well, he amazing came out of writer. his career was in journalism and he was a, a big figure in Time magazine. He was the books editor for a time, promoted a lot of conservative books when he was there. And yeah, just his his memoir, Witness, I think, 
ought to be considered one of the great books of the 20th century uh, and profoundly influential for generations of conservatives. In any case, uh, he's enlisted to write a review of Ayn Rand, the objectivist thinker's uh, novel Atlas Shrugged, which of course has also sold millions of copies, a very influential novel. Among conservatives. Among, yeah, yeah. And it goes right. through phases. You know, it became very popular after the uh, 08 election and the financial crisis. Um, uh, but uh, he, he basically reads it and says, all this is is inverted communism. The Rand has just kind of switched where, you know, where Marxists uh, champion the proletariat, the kind of the base. Rand is saying, no, everything depends on the businessman, on the person at the apex. And, uh, and then not only does, that, does he liken it to, to inverted Marxism, but he then says, you know, on every page there's kind of just this whiff of impending tyranny. And, you know, you can hear the words, you know, to the gas chamber go. Yeah, yeah. Uh, because, yeah, yeah right. um, you know, part of the novel relies on a kind of basically a terrorist attack on a train of people. Um, so uh, this was very controversial, as you might imagine. And Ayn Rand... Um, never spoke to William F. Buckley Jr. again after that wouldn't be in the same room as him. And, uh, but it also speaks to how Buckley and Chambers to a degree felt it very important to kind of define the limits of American conservatism. And what Rand represented um, could not be a part of their conservatism. Not only because she was a, a very committed atheist, but also because she basically... Um, was a Nietzschean who, you know, denounced all traditional morality and thought that altruism was a weakness. And you know, this this is not this is not for us. It's not part of of where of what we stand for. And of course, they applied the same metric to figures like um, the conspiracy theorists at the John Birch Society, the anti-Semites who had populated some of the right-wing magazines of the time. Um, and these types of fences, which Buckley built around his conservatism, I mean, they they held up for a, a good good many decades but but you you characterize it as being part of the, the barriers against these sometimes we're called to sort of the fringes but there is a an anti-libertarian commentary in this isn't there like, that there's the sort of arguing to irving crystals two cheers for capitalism right. not three or am i well i think that buckley would be the first to say that he was very open to libertarianism and like as we've as we were talking you know freedom mattered a lot including economic freedom. Buckley was a, believed in a, a very open market. Um, but he also felt that there, fanaticism was something to be opposed. You could always go too far. And so for figures like Rand and then figures like Murray Rothbard, who was an Austrian economist who basically wanted to uh, just get rid of all government, you know, privatize everything. How you do that is a complicated question, but... He called himself an anarcho-capitalist, right? That was too extreme for Buckley, right? You had to find, you had to balance these things, and that was that was his conservatism: was you had to balance liberty with order, and uh, freedom with tradition. Okay, so now looking forward, we will now look go forward a little bit and and say, uh, you know, Democrats are going to lose badly in the midterms, and Republicans could take both houses, and then in twenty four there might be a switch in the party. Of the, White House because of the sort of reaction against the incompetence of the Biden administration and the excessive move to the to the left in the first part of their administration. So let's just say all that happens and Republicans control the, the three branches. Um, how will, what, how, how, what, how, tell us, you may not be able to predict 
who will win in these battles within the right, although you can if you want to, uh, but, you, but tell us how you think it will get worked out. What will be the key based on your study of history to determining who wins? Well, I do think the key is liberal overreach. And um, I think that has always been actually the key to um, Republican and conservative political victories, right? right? Um, yeah, but that's the key to the victory of the right. right. What's the key to who among the right Whether they carries us toward an order, right. you know, the authoritarian wing of the Republican Party, or back to uh, sort of free market? Well, there you know, just the importance of leadership. I mean, the, the person matters a lot, and the person's capacities and temperament matter a lot. And I find that it wasn't so much, for example, Trump winning the nomination in 2016 that would change the trajectory of the right, but it was him winning the presidency. And once you're elevated to the presidency, once you live at 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue, you have just a tremendous influence, not only over the country, but over, in particular, your party and the movement you represent. And it, it begins to um, basically conform to, to the mold that you create for it. Um, so personality will matter a, a, a lot in a few dimensions. One, um, is the leader of the party alienating people or bringing them in, right? Mm -hmm. um, is he driving people away? Is he frightening people? Or is he welcoming them and, and reassuring them? Very important. Um, two, is there an agenda? Do they have specific ideas? Here's what I want to do. One, two, three. That were part of the election mandate that lets right. him, right, or her. Now, I actually believe, and um, I know people may disagree, I think Trump in 2016 had something of an agenda. Mm -hmm. He didn't in 2020, which I think is one of the reasons, not the only reason, that he lost. Um, another thing is, uh, will, the leader, will the president have the uh, inner strength to see some of these decisions through knowing that they will be costly. And I'll give you the examples from Reagan. One, the uh, firing of the air traffic controllers, right? Hugely controversial move in 1981, but basically laid, laid down the law, to use the cliche, that the unions would not be running things anymore. Um, and also, uh, the other, perhaps the most significant thing on the domestic scene that Reagan did was he allowed Paul Volcker to crush inflation. He hadn't appointed Volcker. Volcker was Carter's guy. But Volcker used the shock therapy to wring inflation out of the system, and that gave us one of the deepest and harshest recessions in our history in 1981-82. Reagan always was saying, stay the course. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, it worked out. But, you know, in the middle of it, uh, in that first term, it wasn't so clear it would work out. So I think a combination of um, uh, not alienating people, of having an agenda, and then having the stamina uh, to see it through are all very important. It would be the key uh, to a successful uh, conservative coalition post-2024. Phoebe, any further last questions or comments? Yeah, I mean, I guess, does it seem unusual to you having studied so many transitions of power within those 100 years, just how much personal influence Trump seems to wield at this point um, after the 2020 loss? in terms of kind of playing this kingmaker role and picking his favorites in different fights. And then a lot of other prospects in 2024 Republicans really emphasizing their similarities with him um, and saying they won't necessarily run if he runs. Um, does that seem like kind of a normal amount of influence for an ex-Republican president to have at this point? Definitely abnormal. Mm -hmm. As a function of 
uh, his decisions to want to remain at the center of things. Most uh, presidents, uh, especially if they're one-term presidents, kind of yeah. fade away. They want to do their personal life. Uh, he wants to remain at the center of things. I do think it's a, remains unclear just how influential he is. Mm -hmm. And uh, we're recording this at the end of April. I think the month of May is a big month. Will be a big month, and the winners of some of these primaries in in the Senate um, mm -hmm. uh, will will show just how important an endorsement from Trump is. You know, oftentimes endorsements don't really matter, yeah. uh, especially if by ex presidents. Um, but if they do seem to matter this time, it just shows that we continue to live in the Trump era on the right. Thanks very much, Matt. Congratulations again on your on your book and the success of the book and on your being here at AEI. We love that too. And uh, Phoebe, thanks very much. And listeners, we'll see you next time. Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed the discussion today. Please remember to subscribe and rate the podcast. Feel free to send us any feedback or suggestions at banter at AEI.org.